All right, open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. We'll conclude this morning our... I thought there was somebody behind me. <laughs> uh, we'll conclude this morning our, our Christmas series, uh, where we preach through a variety of Christmas carols. It's kind of one of the favorite things that we do here. Um, and we've just called the series, Oh Come. Uh, and so Josh preached first on Come All Ye Faithful, and then we preached on Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and O Come, O Come Emmanuel, and today will be Jesus' invitation to come and find rest for your souls. Uh, it's really a perfect way to end, end the Christmas season and, and look forward to the New Year's, and I'm really glad that, that I didn't have a, a sermon titled, you know, New Year's Resolutions for 2024 after we just prayed what Josh made us pray there a few minutes ago. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not a real big fan on, on New Year's resolutions, but I do like the opportunity that the New Year gives to just kind of make a fresh start. And, and so, you know, every conspiracy theorist in the world will tell you that 2024 is the year that the world ends. Um, and so the problem with conspiracy theories, of course, is some of them are true. Um, the good thing about Scripture is that all of it is true. All of it points to this sovereign, holy God who was incarnated into the womb of a virgin named Mary, into the person of Jesus Christ, and he's the one who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And of course, you know that whenever you jump into a passage like this, and uh, it's important to understand the context of that passage, and, and so in the context of the real, real big picture of Matthew is is, is he's, he introduces us to Jesus uh, in the first chapter as he goes through the genealogy of Jesus. And we preached on that a few years ago. That is fascinating uh, to see how the people that God used in, in that genealogy. And so everyone is longing for the Messiah to come and, and, and free them from, from Rome's rule over them. And, and in Matthew 2, the, the Magi show up and they they worship Jesus, and not as a little infant baby in, in a manger scene that we think of, but, but as a home. And, and Jesus was probably a couple years old at that point. And when the Magi leave, then Jesus' family has to flee Egypt because uh, there's a real genuine fear that uh, the king is going to kill all baby boys. He said he would do it, and he was doing it. And, and, and so they fled to Egypt, which, by the way, the Scriptures had foretold many years before that. And so... Um, Jesus' public ministry then begins, and, and, and it's filled with all these healings and miracles that really authenticated uh, that he was who he said he was. And, and so like John the Baptist before him, the message uh, of both John the Baptist and of Jesus is the same. It's God's kingdom has arrived, and the people have, uh, need to repent and to turn from their sins and turn to God. And, and so all of these miracles are happening, and you can imagine how excited the people must have been. Because they know that there's a Messiah that's coming that's going to free them. And they're expecting to be, from, be freed from Rome's tyranny. And they're expecting that the Messiah is going to establish his kingdom and the Jews are going to rule this world. And, and so when Jesus comes with a message of, of, of being the Messiah and, and the kingdom of God coming to earth, uh, then they're really excited because it's, it's we win and, and you guys lose. And but they kind of misconstrued the message. That wasn't his message. He wasn't trying to free them from Rome's rule. He was freeing them from sin's control. And, and remember what we said, their expectations led to their behavior, right? Because we get most angry 
and most anxious when we have expectations that go unmet. And so their expectations is that, that they're going to rule over Rome, and, and Jesus was not fulfilling those expectations. And now they're mad. And so by the time we get to chapter 11, the hostility towards Jesus is, is, is just steadily increasing. In fact, John the Baptist at this point is now in prison, and he's, he's wondering if Jesus is even the Messiah. And the people following Jesus were becoming less and less responsive uh, to both his words and his works. And so you would think that he's doing all these miracles and they're, they're going to be really like jacked up excited about it, but they're not, they're not excited about the signs and miracles. They actually say that he's doing it by the power of the devil. So they couldn't deny the miracles. They just became more hostile towards Jesus. And so you get the message of the kingdom and, and the message of the kingdom is repent. But, but listen, hostile people don't repent, Right? Hostile people are blaming people. Hostile people are complaining people. Humble people repent. And so the immediate context is, is, is really Matthew eleven fifteen 15 to 19. Even though we're going to do 20 to 30 today, go back and let's just kind of read 15 to 19 and look at the words that he says prior to the passage that, that we'll be teaching this morning. He says in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like child, little children. I'm sorry, it's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children. And they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicate, vindicated by her deeds. And so Jesus, the context is he's comparing this generation with a bunch of discontent kids. Like no, no matter what, like you're, you're not happy. You go to a wedding where you should be playing and celebrating and, and you don't dance. And you go to a, a funeral where you're supposed to be mourning and you don't mourn. And so they condemned John the Baptist because John the Baptist didn't eat or drink. And then they condemned Jesus because he ate and drank with sinners. They said, John must have a demon and Jesus must be a drunkard. These are kids, they're just, they're, they're not happy with anything. Kind of sounds a little bit like our generation, doesn't it? Well, let's look at our text and we're gonna, we'll read a couple of sections at a time. Verse 20, then... Okay, then, like what it, then, then ties back to. So he's just told them, you're, you're like a bunch of kids that discontent. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles are done, were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Boy, that's pretty heavy. And so as this passage opens up, Jesus 
denounces the cities that, that he's been traveling through because these were the cities that, uh, that he, he put on his full display of, of the power of the kingdom of God. It almost seems like he's shocked that, that the people are so unrepentant and stubborn. It's kind of like, you have, you just saw all that I did and you're, you're still doubting? So, so what he does is he confronts Israel's disbelief more openly than he had up to this point. Because regardless of how open and public his ministry had been in displaying his kingdom, the people of Israel overwhelmingly rejected it. And by rejecting it, they rejected him. So what does Jesus do? Well, point number one, if you're taking notes, is a warning of judgment. And he specifically pronounces judgment and condemnation against the cities in, in which most of his, in which some of his most significant miracles had occurred. And so he uses words like woe to you as it relates to Chorazin and Bethsaida. And, and I know we see these names, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and nobody's going, oh, oh, wow. Yeah, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, right? It's hard to relate to this. I mean, Chorazin and, and Bethsaida, like, they're, they're bad, okay? And Tyre and Sidon, though, they're worse, but we all know that, right? No, none of us know that. They're just names. But what if we said, woe to you, Ocala? If Las Vegas and San Francisco had the information you have, they would have repented a long time ago. Oh, that hits home a little bit better. And so both Chorazin and Bethsaida, they were firsthand witnesses of Jesus' ministry. They saw the miracles. They heard his teaching. They marveled at his authority over nature. But what didn't they do? Repent. They, they heard it but they didn't do anything with it. And Jesus is saying, Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago if they had the information that you have. Now, what's John and Jesus's ministry? What's their message? Repent, why? Because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the first thing we see here uh, under the, the warning of judgment, uh, point number A here is, uh, is Jesus's judge. Jesus is judge. And when you think of Jesus, especially in our culture and our world today, nobody thinks of him as judge. They might think of him as teacher. They may think of him as savior or healer or miracle worker. Now, all that's true. But he's also given all authority to judge. John 5, verse 22, he says, for not even the father judges anyone, but he, being the father, has given all judgment to who? The son. So, so Jesus came into the world to save sinners, no doubt about it. But he has also come into the world to bring judgment. John 9, verse 39. Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world. So that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And so Jesus will act as judge of both believers and unbelievers. You go, wait a second, I thought that like if, as a Christian, if I believe like I'm going to heaven, right? you are, right? But so this isn't a heaven or hell judgment. If, if you're a Christian, you, like, you are in heaven for all of eternity, but you won't escape judgment. The judgment for believers is what they call the, the Bema seat of Christ. 
It's a judgment of reward based on how faithfully we serve Christ while here on earth. Heaven is not a reward. Okay, hear me. Heaven is not a reward. Heaven is a gift. It's free. It, but rewards in heaven are based on our faithfulness here on earth. Now, on the other hand, unbelievers will also be judged by Jesus at the great white throne judgment. Everybody at that judgment, Revelation 20, everyone at that judgment will eventually and ultimately be in the lake of fire. So that judgment also has nothing to do with eternal destiny. Okay, those without Christ, the moment they die, will, will go to the lake of fire ultimately. Those with Christ, the moment they die, they will be in heaven. So we seal our fates on earth prior to death. The, the great white throne judgment determines the severity of the punishment based on what they did in life and how much they knew. Okay, the, listen now, not just what they did, but how much they knew, how much information they had. So that's why he can say it's, it's more tolerable, hell is more tolerable for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Why? Because they didn't have the information that Capernaum had. They didn't have the information that Bethsaida had and Chorazin had. You know, I've often had people ask me and they'll say, well, what about, what about the guy that's kind of in the deepest jungle of Africa or the Amazon or something, and, 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 and they die having never heard the name of Jesus? Like, what happens to them? Now, some people will say, oh, you know, God's loving. I mean, he knows and he'll, he'll, he'll give them a chance. Listen, that goes completely against Scripture. Completely. Which, which is why we do missions, right? We want the people in the deepest jungles of wherever or in the cities of wherever to hear the gospel. But God has made himself known to every person who has ever walked on the face of the earth in at least two ways. First, in his creation, and secondly, in his conscience. So God has written his law on everybody's hearts, which actually means there's no true atheist. Everyone knows in their heart that there's a God. Now, they might suppress that truth. They may reject that truth. They may argue against that truth. But the Bible teaches that they know. In fact, I've never sat with an atheist for more than about five minutes that didn't say, actually, I'm agnostic, not atheist. Because everybody knows in their heart that there's a God. So the better question, rather than what about the person in the jungle that, that never hears, the, the better question is, what about you? You who have access to this gospel 24-7 through radio, through podcasts, through television stations, like you have so much information. And so he is the judge and be here the reason for judgment. So here's a people who heard the good news of the kingdom. Bethsaida, Chorazin, woe to you. They saw the good news of the kingdom, literally Jesus walking, but they didn't feel the need to turn from their sin. And so Jesus had done all the miracles, all kinds of miracles. They had, he, he authenticated himself with, uh, to be God in flesh. But, and the reason that he's judging them is seen in verse 20. 
because they did not repent. In other words, they should have, they should have recognized that God had arrived. They just refused to believe it. Now, they didn't deny the power. They didn't deny the miracles. They just refused to repent. And the kind of repentance that Jesus is, is looking for is a complete change of life. It's a complete change of thinking. It's a complete change of behavior. They should have turned from their own lives. They should have followed him. That's the fruit of true Christianity. I, I didn't grow up in the church. I, I was 26 years old uh, before I, I believed the gospel. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't grow up with, man, we got kids in here. You guys got so much information. I mean, tons of information. You've, you've been to the VBSs. You've been through all the Sunday schools. You listen to the teachings. You take notes. Man, that is so cool. But you got to do something with it. You can't just be like, no, I prayed that prayer at VBS. And like, I'm in. I'm good. And I go live however I want. Like, that actually means you didn't get in. They, they should have bowed down to him. They should have turned their lives over to him. But they refused to repent, which is ultimately the sin of unbelief. And listen to me, unbelief is not intellectual. Unbelief is moral. It's closely connected to disobedience. If someone doesn't believe the gospel... It is rarely for intellectual reasons. Most often, if somebody doesn't believe the gospel, it's for moral reasons. They love their sin more than they love God. John 3, look at verse 19. Everybody knows John 3, 16, what's after it? Verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than their light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that their, his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And so I'll say it again, unbelief is not intellectual. Unbelief is a moral issue. Unbelief is the fact that men love the darkness of their sin more than they love the light of the Lord. And so they don't come to the light because the, the light will expose their darkness. And so think about this now. Disobedience drives unbelief, and then unbelief drives more, drives more disobedience. That's why it's not intellectual, it's moral. You're really asking yourself the question, so who's going to be my Lord? Me or him? Who, who or why should I have to depend on Jesus? And what you'll find is the less you trust then the more you're going to disobey, and the more you disobey, then the less you'll trust. And the evangelical church in the West, we've created this cure for that. And we've made following Jesus really easy. And yet Jesus never did that. Jesus used things like, follow me. He said, if, I, if, if me, the master, if I was persecuted, what would make you think that you wouldn't also be persecuted? Because whoever wishes to save his life is going to lose it. And so his call to, to those who would come to him is actually a, a call to die. Right, Galatians 2, he says, I, I have been 
crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives me, lives in me. And now this life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Like, I, I am not my own. Like, that's the decision when you cross the line to true biblical Christianity. And I'm not talking about praying a prayer in some, <coughs> in some church and walking some aisle and getting back. Like, I'm not saying, that's fruit, right? But true biblical Christianity is, is my life is now traded for yours. Like, I'm dying to myself and I'm living for you. And, and if you've not crossed that line, there's a real good chance that you've never actually been saved. And it doesn't matter how long you've been in church. His call is a call to die. Christianity is not just, you know, believe, believe, believe. Don't, don't ask questions. Just believe. Like, that's not Christianity. Christianity calls you to repent. Christianity calls you to give up your life and follow him. Christianity calls you to a commitment to the body of Christ. Anything other than that is a works-based religion. And it's a formula that some church or some pastor has said, and he just says, if you just pray this prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, you won't go to hell. Anybody want to go to hell, kids? Well, I don't want to go to hell. Who wants to go to heaven? Ooh, 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 ooh. That's the religion of Christianity. But remember, it's a religious mob that condemned and crucified Jesus. It's those with a religious formula that hated him. But nobody ever questioned their religious commitment to him. The problem is a problem of unbelief. And unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral one. So why is Jesus bringing judgment? Because they did not repent. And so instead of responding like they should have with sackcloth and ashes, they respond with hostility and accusations. Which brings us to point C, the ultimate judgment. You know, what Jesus is saying here is that there are actually degrees of punishment in hell and, and degrees of re reward in heaven. And I know that may sound shocking to some of you. And so I saw this uh, quote from a guy named Colin Smith. And, and listen to what he says. He says, suppose a middle school student punches another student in class. What happens? Well, that student is given detention. Well, suppose during detention, this boy punches the teacher. What happens? Well, the student then gets suspended from school. Well, suppose on the way home, the same boy punches a policeman on the nose. What happens? Well, he finds himself in jail. Suppose some years later, the very same boy is in a crowd waiting to see the President of the United States. And as the President passes by, the boy lunges forward to punch the President in the nose. What happens? He's shot dead by the Secret Service. Now listen, in every case, the crime is precisely the same, but the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. And so what comes from sinning against God? Everlasting destruction, the wrath of God. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Because if Tyre and Sidon and Sodom had the info you have, we wouldn't be talking about them today. Now look at verse 25. <clears throat> at that time, 
Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, you would think that Jesus would have gotten angry or sought revenge, but his response to all of this is, is, a, is prayer and an invitation to come to him. Who's he talking to? Those childish kids right, who were just discontent, who weren't satisfied with anything. And so point number two is an invitation to rest. By the way, I know we're well into this time, but that's our introduction to this text that we were hoping to get to this morning. Uh, So the invitation is really seen in verse 28, where he says, come to me, uh, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And and this is really a crucial moment in Jesus's ministry, because the rebellion against God has has set in among the people, and, and it's just progressively getting worse. Ultimately, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, show itself in, in open rejection to the Messiah. So what does Jesus do? And, he, and the first thing he does is he turns to his father and gives thanks. Isn't that cool? I, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And so that's where this invitation in, in verse 28 is, is, is rooted in. It, it, it's, it's, it's rooted in the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> And the message that Jesus continually uh, portrayed in the, in the New Testament uh, was that he came to do the Father's will, which was a slam on the religious leaders of that day because they were intellectually and spiritually proud. And so they, they wouldn't come to him. Why? Because that would have required coming in humility and proud people aren't humble. Proud people don't want to do God's will. They want to do their own will. And I just think it's so funny to me how it pleased God to bypass the religious scribe and bypass the Pharisee in order to save these little infants, us, the simple, the common people. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, that's a stumbling block. To Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I'm not sure if there's a better verse. Like, you may have family members visiting and stuff like that. They're going, oh, this, this, this Jesus thing is just foolishness. And you think, no, it, it is the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. And so the gospel, of, uh, uh, the gospel message is, is just that. It's power and wisdom. And he bypasses the wise and the intelligent. By the way, that's a real sarcastic claim. Right? They may be wise and intelligent, but not in the eyes of God. They're wise and intelligent in the, in the ways of the world. What does God call them? Fools. You're fools. You don't even understand the, the basic, most simple truths of the kingdom. By the way, it's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of pride. And so Paul, remember Paul, he had the wisdom of the world. He had recognition of the world. But he humbled himself 
for a message preached to infants, the simple message of the gospel. And look what he says in thinking about this from Philippians 3. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so Paul stopped relying on on his intelligence to to be able to discern and, and try to understand spiritual matters. Wise people, intelligent people, they can be religious people or irreligious people. It's not intelligence or, or a lack thereof that, that keeps uh, someone out of the kingdom. It's pride because they did not repent, because they would not submit to, to God's wisdom and God's truth. And that's ultimately what keeps people from the kingdom. Now, the religious people, he, he relies on his religious tradition or his good works to somehow please God and Listen, the religious person who may be here every Sunday, may read their Bible every day, they may be part of the worship team or serving in other areas. Like, they're, like, if they're counting on their works to get to heaven, they're just as wicked as the atheist. Now, the atheist reasons away in their own mind that there is no God because that's actually better than there being a God because then they're accountable. Now, the religious folks, they just deny grace because they think that we've done, they've done their part and, and God owes them. And the intelligent folks, they deny grace because they think that they know better than God. So what does God do? What's it say? He was pleased. Verse 26, yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. He's pleased to hide the things of the kingdom from them. He's pleased to, to skip over them and, and take this message to inf- excuse me, infants, those who are spiritually humble and spiritually helpless. And there was no doubt in the mind of those hearing these words that Jesus was speaking that Jesus was making a claim to be God. They sought to kill him in John 5 and in John 10 and because of the same claim. And the, the deity of Christ is, is at the heart of the gospel message. We've been singing it and we've been preaching it all season. Emmanuel, God with us, God literally with us. Not not only was he God, but but he received all things from the Father. Well, what are the all things? All things is all authority, all truth, all power, all sovereignty. And and in our finite minds, like that, that's just, we don't understand. That's why Jesus says, well, we can't know him like the Father knows him and We can't know the Father like the Son knows Him. And so God has to be the one who who breaks through our dead hearts to give us understanding in order to believe. And point A, He makes this invitation to come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And one of the stark differences between Jesus and the Pharisees is is that Jesus says, come, and the Pharisees say, do. You you could really, the Jesus says, come. The Pharisees say do. The Pharisees tried to make people follow Moses and all their traditions, but but listen, true salvation is not found in religion. It's not found in traditions. It's found in the person 
of Jesus Christ. And so the invitation to come is an invitation to know the Father and know the Son. It's an invitation to salvation. It's an invitation to the kingdom. It's an invitation to eternal life. To come to him means to trust him. It's to, it's to give your life to him. It's to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the invitation, who's the invitation to? The weary and the heavy laden. The exhausted and the burdened. And listen, if you've ever spent time in a legalistic church, you know what it means to be weary. You know what it means to be heavy laden. You know what it means to be just just fed up and tired of just trying to keep up with everybody's rules and traditions. And that's that's the society that Jesus went to. Those who had these, these pharisaical laws all over them. And that's how they would have felt under the yoke of this legalism. And yet most of them rejected Christ. John 1 verse 11, he says, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to, we can say, equal to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, or will of man, but of God. Remember, the, the message of John the Baptist, the message of Jesus, <clears throat> is a message of repentance. But they rejected him. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. So what's he do? Well, then I'll go to the Gentiles. This message will go to the Gentiles then. And I love what, what, how Matthew describes this kingdom mission. By the way, this is just one chapter before in Matthew 10. These 12 Jesus sent out after, instru- after instructing them, do not go on the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any cities of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopard, lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or a sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. If it's not worthy, take it back. How do you do that? Never mind. Um, whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And then he pronounced those cities. City after city would not receive the call of Jesus to repent. And Jesus is like, if the Jews don't want me, then the invitation goes to the Gentiles. Point B, the invitation to rest. The Pharisees laid all kinds of burdens on them. And the last three verses of our text this morning, wow, I don't know there's a more comforting passage in all the scriptures. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the invitation is to take and to... To, um, to, the invitation is to take his yoke and learn from him. 
And we've talked about loving God with our minds. It's not blind faith, it's historical faith. Uh, the resurrection of Christ is, is one of the most historically verifiable events in the history of the world. I mean, you got 12 cowardly disciples who abandon him. And then just days later, they're courageously dying for him. Why? Because something happened. They saw the resurrection of Christ. They saw his nail-scarred hands and his feet, and they saw the hole in his side, and they watched him ascend to heaven. And by yoking to him, they became true disciples of his. They, they joined him in proclaiming his message of salvation and living for him in his kingdom. And, and so he's saying, listen, trade the heavy and exhausting burden for my yoke and my burden, which are easy and light. Listen, serving him is not a burden. If you find yourself burdened serving him, you're not serving him. And so the one who, who they accused of stirring up trouble and doing miracles by the power of Satan and, and, and eating with sinners describes himself only one time in all of scripture, and this is it. I'm gentle and humble in heart. And did you notice that you do not earn rest? It's given to you. I will give you rest. Rest is free. It comes from Christ. So how do we apply this? Three really simple terms. Number one, come to him. Nowhere in our text does Jesus say to come to his teaching or to come to his doctrinal statement or to come to his church. The invitation is to come to him. It's to learn from him. And the rest that he offers is a rest that is given and not earned. Paul told the Galatian church, if, if we could be made right with God by the good things we do, Jesus died for nothing. There was no reason for him to die. Look what Paul tells Titus in Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so God will either save you all by himself or he will not save you at all. I love that, that great hymn, Rock of Ages, where he says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die. And if you have never come to Christ, by, by trusting in his work and the cross alone. And if your life doesn't demonstrate that, then I would encourage you today is that day. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Now, if you have been saved, you've come to him, point number two, then you grow in him. And to grow in him is to learn from him. Remember earlier I said that the, the fruit of unbelief is disobedience. You know what the fruit of faith is? Obedience. If your faith, faith is real, then you're gonna grow. I, I'm afraid that there are many Christians in the church who Paul David Tripp calls functional atheists. Listen to what he says. I'm concerned with the level of functional atheism that exists in the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, we believe that God exists, that he created the heavens and the earth, that the Bible is accurate and that paradise awaits. But we often live at a functional level as if there is no God. You go, what does he mean by that? He says, 
We worry too much. We control too much. We demand too much. We regret too much. And we run after God replacements too much. We do all of these things because we have forgotten God's presence and power and glory. It's functional atheism. And so while I, I think a level of that will always be part of the battle that we face. But the more you grow, the less you'll worry, the less you'll feel your need to control, the less you'll demand, which means the less you'll have to regret, and the less you'll have to look for replacements for God. And so as leaders in the church, we have a huge responsibility that we take very seriously. And our responsibility is to give you opportunities to grow. And so some of that is in the form of of our church service on Sunday mornings. It's Bible studies during the week. It's Sunday school. It's it's small groups. It's other training that we do during the year. But most of your growth is not on us. It's on you. It's your commitment to grow in your knowledge of God's word daily and then obey what you read. It's your responsibility to find opportunities to use the gifts that God has given you to to build up the body of Christ. It's our responsibility to give you opportunities for that. And then our final point, number three, is live for him. You see, when we come to Christ by faith and he gives us his spirit to live inside of us, that we would learn from him and grow in him and then begin responding to what we're learning And what I've noticed is that there's really two extremes that we can get caught up in. One extreme is really bad and one extreme is really good. The the first extreme, and and honestly, this happens a lot of times in a church like ours that that really takes seriously our call to equip our people. And so we have a lot of Bible in everything that we do. Um, And so we can get caught up in the extreme of of knowing a bunch of information and, and being able to answer questions and win arguments and we get really prideful about how much we know. Uh, that's the negative side. So we become more intellectual if we want to use uh, uh, Jesus's words here. But the other extreme is the more we know, the more we love. First John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So if, if, if you're timing God's word, whether here or alone or in a Sunday school, like if that doesn't drive you to, to love God and love others also, you're not applying the scriptures. If it's just driving you to be like, oh, that's really cool. And now I know this. Now I can go answer that question. And, and now I can go confront this person because I've got this package, right, of information. That's not the right application for it. The, the fruit of our lives should be seen in how we live for him and how we love him. As we grow, like our, our marriages should get more loving, not less. As we grow, we should be more generous. As we grow, we should be more kind. As we grow, we should be more hospitable. As we grow, we should be more, sum it up in loving. Yes, knowledge is good, but growth is not just more knowledge. So it really starts with time in God's word, but it doesn't end there. You you read God's word and then you obey what he tells you. 
And then you love how he shows you. And then you go where he sends you. And that's on you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this invitation that you've given. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, Father, I pray for those who may be in here this morning recognize that they've never really truly given their lives to Christ. They may have the religion of Christianity, but they don't have Christ. And so, Father, I pray for them. I pray that today that they would trust you alone for their salvation. Thank you that you've done everything needed. I pray that we would not be like Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, that we would not be those who would be judged because we did not repent. It begins with repentance. And so I pray for those who need to repent today and believe in Christ. I thank you that you've made it so simple not easy, but simple. He who believes has eternal life. And I pray for those who need to grow. They know Christ as Lord. They know him as Savior. But they need to grow in the grace of God. They need to grow in their knowledge of God. And they need to grow in their love for God. Thank you that there's so many avenues that we have to equip pray that it would begin with time in your word. I pray that we would obey the things that you tell us to do. That as we read your word, that we would respond in a way that you show us in the way that you love others. And then as you call us to go, I pray that we would be willing to go where you send us. So Father, take this time of worship and be pleased with it. And so we sing to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.